Well, we're back in 1 Corinthians 7 today. It's kind of the third sermon um, on the, sex, the section of the book and the section on sex that we've been talking about. The first week was on the Christian sex ethic. This week, the, rather, the following week was on marriage and sex. And today, uh, I'm speaking about singleness, only to discover, once I had this sermon completed, that I talked very little, if at all, about sex. So uh, it's primarily on singleness. And I'd ask you to consider this. Have you ever stopped to, to just ponder some of the challenges of being a single Christian today? If you were raised in the church, you know that most Christians just assume marriage is necessary for human flourishing. We do. Uh, the church has either unintentionally or sometimes intentionally adopted, adopted an idolatrous view of marriage and sex maintaining that you know, marriage is really necessary to live a full and good life, and, and sex is necessary to, to thrive. I mean, unintentionally or intentionally, you know, the Christian ideal in America that's been passed down to us is almost like, you know, the, we're supposed to all be chasing after the, the spouse and a minivan full of kids on the way to Disneyland. <laughs> And, you know, there's also a stigma in church about being single. I mean, sort of, uh, especially as you get older, like, uh, what's wrong with you? Why, why are you still single? Why haven't you found somebody? And singles have been told unhelpful messages like, well, like this one. As soon as you're fully satisfied with God alone, then God will bring that special someone into your life. Like as though contentment is the, is the requirement for God to, you know, give us the things that we want. Or... Or even this one, before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you into the kind of person for them, that's meant for them, you know, to make you into someone who's wonderful. And and other, maybe well-meaning, but patronizing statements such uh, as those. You look at the American church, it's probably safe to say that most everything in church revolves around families and kids. I mean, that is the demographic that churches covet above all others. And it is one of the primary reasons uh, Americans who are even maybe de-churched go back to church is once they have kids, they feel like that you know, kids need to have some faith formation and, and they head back, in, back to church again. Uh, you know, too many people also act as if their time in singleness is just a stepping stone or a parenthesis until their real life begins in marriage. I mean, we have an epidemic of loneliness, and while not all singles feel lonely today, a, a whole lot of them do. And somebody pointed this out to me. Even the word itself, single or unmarried, it, it, it's almost like we're defining them. It suggests like they're defined by the absence of someone else in their life. If you look around culture, we talked about it briefly last week, how Freudian our culture is, how we live in a tremendously sexualized society, Sex sells. Sex is everywhere. That serves to fan the flames of your desire wherever you go. It it makes the thought of a 40-year-old virgin in America Day absolutely, like, laughable. A laughable anomaly. And then finally, I just ask you to consider, have you ever thought about the challenge of being a a same-sex attracted Christian who, who... is committed to living a life of celibacy and just how difficult that must be to have desires that you didn't ask for 
desires that may never go away, and desires that you believe according to like faithfulness to Jesus requires you to say no to the rest of your life. Desires that you will, will never be able to satisfy. Like, I mean, that's a pretty massive cross that one is being asked to carry. Now, we really don't stop to consider some of the challenges of being single in the church today. And maybe that's why we don't take a passage like 1 Corinthians 7 very seriously at all, because many Christians can't fathom how and why Paul would speak the way he does in this passage. Namely, he has such a high and positive view of singleness, and indeed, actually, the whole Bible has a very positive view of singleness. And then he also, to accompany that, has a a very realistic view of marriage and maybe pessimistic view of marriage. And both of those are present here. So in my opinion, whether you're married or single, it's this is a really good opportunity for us to listen to Paul and to hear how he uh, describes this state of life. Because remember, that's ultimately going to be every one of our states. All of us, one day, are going to be single, uh, either in this life or in the life to come. Because Jesus says there's no, re- there's no marriage after the resurrection. So let's consider that. 1 Corinthians 7, we'll start in verses 7 and 8, and then we're going to jump ahead to verses 25 through 35. He says, 7, I wish that all people were as uh, I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am, that is unmarried. But if they do not have self-control... They should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. I want to pause just a moment here, because this, I think, is a verse that is often misunderstood and and misapplied. Who are the unmarried that he's speaking about? Well, we think it's likely widowers. So he's addressing here widowers and widows, those who have been previously married. And he says something about self-control. Those who do not have self-control— widows and widowers. Another way of translating it is, because it's written in the Greek in the present tense, those who are not controlling themselves, and if that's what he's actually saying, then, then more than likely these widows and widowers are having sex. <laughs> they're not controlling themselves. They're having sex with someone who they are already betrothed to and likely to marry, and that's what he's speaking about you know, sometimes the passage, as I said, it's treated, mis- misinterpreted and treated wrongly, treated along the lines of, well, if you have a really high libido and you lack self-control, then you ought to go out and get married really quickly. <laughs> that's how it's better, and that's how we understand it's better to marry than to burn with desire. But I hope you can see that it's actually a more nuanced, uh, a nuanced situation that he is speaking into. It's it's widowers and widowers, w- widows who, um, who, are, who are sleeping with their betrothed. Remember, too, that self-control, self-control is just part of the fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is available to all believers. It's not a superpower that's given to just a few. It's something that we're supposed to have in, in greater degree the more we mature in Christ. Enough on verses 7 and 8. Let's jump to verse 25. He goes, now about virgins, 
And virgins in this context would be uh, women of marriageable age. So he says, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give, it, give an opinion as one by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Because of the present distress, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Well, do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Well, do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. We're jumping ahead, and in this section, Paul is establishing a principle that he's just expanding on the principle that basically, don't try and change the status you had when you became a Christian. Don't try to change your status. Don't feel under any pressure either to get married if you're single or to separate from your spouse if you have one. And he says you don't feel the pressure to change because of, quote, the present distress. Now, that begs the question, what is he talking about? What is the present distress? It, it kind of seems in the verses that follow that the present distress might be uh, the return of Christ. You know, did Paul believe that Jesus was returning to earth so soon at any moment and there would be some apocalyptic ending to human history as we know it, and, and then, you know, the new resurrected existence. Is that the distress that he's anticipating? Well, possibly. Another, another uh, item that has been suggested is there was, at this time, shortly, I think either before or after his writing, a, a, a tremendous famine swept through that portion of the Roman Empire, which I mean, it was bad, and it really affected, as a famine would, the poor, and many of the Christians were poor. And so it could be that he's, he's especially concerned about the poor and vulnerable Christians, and in that regard, he's saying, let's not change anything because times are going to get rather lean. Um, it could be that both are, are in view. But he goes on, verse 29. Uh, this is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though uh, they did not weep, those who rejoice as, those who, uh, as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they didn't own anything, and then those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for this world in its current form is passing away. Verse 32, I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the unmarried, the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, and not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper, and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. That was a long passage. Let's pray one more time. Our Father, help us to see all, all of reality in light of what the Bible says, and to see particularly singleness in light of what the Bible says. I mean, especially given the fact that your son lived the most fully human, authentic life as a single man, having never had sexual relations uh, with anyone. And clearly that was a, a good thing for Jesus, and you tell us that it can be a good thing for us too. And so Lord, help us uh, to see that and speak to us wherever we're at this afternoon. You know, um, you know the state of our hearts, and we ask that you would really 
Speak and make yourself known to us through Jesus Christ in this passage. Amen. (laughs) All right, number one, the goodness of singleness. It's important that you, again, get some of the historical background on this issue. And, I, you know, I keep coming back to historical background throughout the series because I think it, it just really helps to see uh, how Christianity was, in many ways, overturning social structures and, and uh, ways of thinking and thought that had been dominant, the, the dominant uh, thinking for, for millennia. And what most people don't realize is that Christianity was the very first religion or worldview that held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. Nobody was doing that. Nobody had really done that before. I mean, nearly all religions and cultures, they always make an absolute value of the family and an absolute value also of bearing children. And in the Eastern world, in a shame and honor culture, in a shame and honor society, um, there's It's very difficult to have any kind of honor if you don't have family honor, right? And then there's no real lasting significance or legacy that you can, you know, have or give to to pass on without male heirs. And, And so family and sexual relations for that purpose was ultimate. One of the, uh, good, the, uh, historian Stanley Hauerwas, he writes this, that one clear difference between Christianity and Judaism and all the other traditional religions is the former's entertainment of the idea of singleness as the paradigm way of life for its followers. Not only did the church not pressure people to marry, but as an institution, it actually supported the most vulnerable group in the in that society, the widows, and said, we will, we will support you so that you don't have to remarry. Should they be widowed, Christian women enjoyed substantial advantages that pagan, pagan widows did not. Pagan widows faced great social pressure to remarry. Augustus, the emperor, even had white widows fined if they failed to marry within two years. In contrast, among Christians and Christian communities, widowhood was highly respected, and remarriage was, if anything, mildly discouraged. The church stood ready to sustain poor widows, allowing them a choice as to whether or not to remarry. That was from historian Rodney Stark. And it all really comes out of the the idea that the Christian community, when it's operating properly, it's— we're supposed to be a blended family. We really are a blended family. And the aim of the church, when it's, again, operating properly, is to give people an experience of community, of family, that outdoes whatever it is that they might have had apart from Christ. You say, where did I get that from? It's, it's actually the promise of Jesus himself. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time, as in at this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. So what Jesus is saying there is even if we even if we leave behind certain forms of familial intimacy in order to follow him, like if the church 
is doing its job properly, um, no one should feel like they've been given a bad deal because when you come into the Christian community, you end up getting new fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and houses, he even says. And by that same token, um, even you know, spouses, so to speak. We, you come in here with a family, a new family. And I know that's a tall order in America today to be that kind of community, but don't you see that is Jesus' own vision for what the church can be. And it's that vision that helps sustain the goodness of singleness. Number two, the gift of singleness. Now, this is a question, we got to return back to verse seven to ask and answer. What is Paul speaking about in verse seven? John, pull seven up for me. It's the next slide. Is he speaking here about the gift of celibacy, or is he speaking of the gift of singleness? If you're paying close attention in the sermon last week, you actually heard me refer to it as the gift of celibacy, because that's how it's always been taught to me. As though uh, one, of the, one of the spiritual gifts out there is that God makes certain people um, like uniquely celibate. And so here it is. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that gift. Um, Many have thought that Paul is talking about a complete lack of interest or desire for marriage. You know, in this view, to have the gift of celibacy is to experience really no emotional struggle, no restlessness or wish to be married or wish to have sex. Um, When you thought about it in that respect, a lot of us have, I know at some point in our lives, joked along the lines of, well, I don't have that gift, (laughs) you know. But but is that really what he's talking about? If the gift is just some special ability to suppress your libido, that would seem to suggest that singleness itself is, is not very good. I mean, if you need some unique superpower to get through it, then singleness can't really be a good thing. But the whole section is indeed about how singleness is a good thing and how it can be a spiritual uh, advantage. And it's for that and several other reasons why I think the the gift that he's talking about is is actually singleness is a gift. Marriage is a gift too. The state of marriage is a gift, but singleness is itself a gift. You know, a, a second reason I don't think he's talking about a gift of celibacy is that way of thinking can easily influence us Uh, to be deeply bitter towards God and resent God's provision for our lives. And I've seen this happen with people before, because if you're single for a long period of time, and you don't want to be single, and you're, I don't know, you're getting into your 30s, mid-30s, late 30s, and you're feeling like, um, I didn't get the gift of celibacy. God has got this all wrong. I, I didn't get that gift, and he's forcing me into a situation he hasn't equipped me to cope with that's deeply frustrating, and I've seen singles feel frustrated that way. But if it's not what he's actually saying, you know, on the flip side, what would we, what would we say to somebody who believed that, you know, I'm married, but I don't have the gift of marriage? (laughs) Uh, I don't have the gift of marriage. It's not part of my gift matrix, so, you know, so what? I'll ditch my spouse and my children? What it really is, is is a situation where we have misunderstood what the Bible says about gifts, Because in his writings, Paul always uses the word gift to mean an ability God gives to build up others, build others up. Like, a gift is not a way to have a stress-free life. Uh, The giftness of being single for Paul 
lay in the freedom that gave him to concentrate on his ministry uh, in ways that a married man could not. Like, in the same way, the gift of singleness is like all the other gifts. It's a way that God has given you to build up other people and bless other people. Seen in that light, you know, Paul very, much, very well could have struggled with uh, singleness. He, he could have had what we would call today an emotional struggle with singleness. He might have wanted to be remarried. But what he discovered is that his single state was, was a, a gift given by God to him that he could pass on to others. And many of the unique features of a single life, such as, you know, his flexibility with time, meant that he was able to minister effectively in a way that he never could have otherwise. And so, can conclude this. Um, consider then that the single calling Paul speaks of is neither a condition without any struggle, nor, on the other hand, an experience of misery. It is fruitfulness in life and ministry through, that, through the single state. And when you have this gift, there may indeed be struggles, but the main thing is that God is helping you to grow spiritually and be fruitful in the lives of others despite them. That means a single gift is not just for a select few, and it is not necessarily lifelong, though it may be. It may be a grace given for a finite period of time. Let's talk third, number three about the, the trouble with marriage. And part of the sermon, a fair bit of the sermon actually, I've drawn from a talk that was given by a pastor. His name is Sam Alberry, and he's a British pastor. He's working in the States. I think he's working in Nashville at a church right now. And Sam has written a book on singleness, so he's thought about it quite a bit. And he was actually at a church giving a talk on singleness next sun last Sunday, and I happened to come across it. Uh, Sam Elbury is a same-sex attracted celibate Christian. He's 48 years old. He has been single all of his life. Uh, and he, he says, I'm really happy with my singleness. I, I, I like being single. It's, it's a good thing. And one of the statements he made that caught my attention— He's probably just exposed some of the unhealthy ways that I think about it. But he, he said this, that, and I didn't put it up on the screen. There are ups and downs of marriage, and there are ups and downs of singleness. And what we tend to do is we tend to compare the ups of marriage with the downs of singleness. Like, we look over the fence, and we think, well, if I was married, I wouldn't have these troubles. Like, you know, look how, look how good married people— have it, but you know, comparing the ups of marriage and the downs of singleness, that's not a fair comparison, is it? Like, what we really need to do is speak realistically about marriage in the church, and notice that's what Paul does in verse 28. I mean, he says married people will have trouble in this life. You're going to have trouble, and I'm trying to spare you some of those troubles. You know, our cultural assumption is just the opposite, that, that singleness is the state that gives you trouble, and that marriage is the escape from those troubles. You know, singleness is, is terrible, and marriage is, you know, way, way, way better. But, I mean, how could that possibly be true when nearly 50% of all marriages in America end in divorce? And when you talk to a divorced spouse afterwards, many times, not always, but many times they will say to you, like, yeah, I would have— I should have stayed single. I would have been better off if I hadn't married and gone through with that. Now, I think the, the, people, who in, the people who idolize marriage the least actually tend, out, tend, tend to be married people. 
You know, when you're single, it's really easy to look at a partner, a romantic partner, and think, oh, you know, I'm so madly in love with you. You know, you're everything I ever wanted. You're going to complete my life and make me satisfied. You, you know, you think in those terms, very quickly in marriage, you discover, you go from basically, um, you complete me to, as uh, one of my pastor friends said, you confound me. <laughs> you deeply confound me. Because it's, it's, not, it's not easy. I mean, marriage is the union of two sinners. What could go wrong? <laughs> and you know, we're two sinners who have experienced you know, trauma in our past. We're two sinners who have had probably uh, unhealthy uh, marriages modeled to us before, unhealthy ways of relating uh, husband to wife, wife to husband. I mean, whoever thought that that would be the, the recipe for happiness ever after? No. Those of you who have, those of you who have been around for a while, think of the marriages that you, that you ha- have witnessed, like what they've had to go through. I mean, what your own marriage has had to go through. You know, you've watched marriages try to repair after infidelity. How hard was that? You've watched marriages, married couples that struggled with infertility. How hard was that? We've watched marriages that struggled tremendously with, with their children. Maybe, they, maybe it's a special needs child. How hard is that? Maybe it's children that were adopted into a family out of the foster care system and that can be very, very difficult. How hard was that? I mean, even if you have the healthiest, most well-adjusted biological children in the world, um, it's not easy, is it? Parenting, not in the least. All of us have watched people in really difficult and loveless and lonely marriages you know, try to live through that. And all of us, I think, have seen um, changes that happen in the lives of at least one spouse, like bad changes, you know, long-term illness that confines, say, one spouse to being bedridden for the rest of their life, uh, a, a disease that strikes them, um, mental illness and, and just a breakdown of mental health or, or some accident. And you watch marriages try to survive that, and, and you hear, like, you hear maybe one spouse stay about his bedridden wife who I mean, I can think of one very prominent American theologian who basically, they went on their honeymoon in Switzerland. There was, they, they got, they were hiking in the Alps. There was a tremendous rainstorm, lightning. She got super, super sick. And from the next day forward, for the next 45 years, she remained in bed. And we all know s- stories like that. And normally what people will say in stories like that is, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I signed up for. And as much as we feel, as we must feel empathy for them, uh, at the same time, that's exactly what we signed up for. That's what you signed up for. In sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, till death do us part. Those were the vows. Those were the vows that we spoke. And... You know, in this fallen world, nobody gets out easy. Nobody, nobody has an easy deal. And oftentimes, the, the hardest deal that we get is within, you know, the lifelong covenant with our spouse or within our family system, you know, with our spouse and with our children. And Paul says, 
In one respect, I'm going to spare you from that. Verses 32 through 35. He says, I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are, are divided. He goes on, What I want is so that you may be devoted to the Lord and without distraction. He's not saying that single people are far more spiritual and married people are far more worldly, but he is saying, just obviously, when you're married, you have a lot of obligations to very specific things. And a wife and a mortgage and kids and all of that, it, it takes a lot of time and attention. I mean, kids take a tremendous amount of, of time and attention. Albury, he, was, he made a joke, and he asked, you know, have you ever watched a married couple with little kids just try to get out the door of the house? I mean, th- that's like a month-long ordeal. <laughs> you know, it's an all-day event. He said, I've watched my married friends try to get child number one dressed, and then child number two is taking off their clothes, while child number three is in the bathroom for the 14th time. And I mean, it, it can take like a month to get out the door. And he said, you know, as a single person, what do I have to do to walk out the door? I just walk out the door. <laughs> I, I can drop everything. I, just, I turn on a dime. My life is so much more nimble when I'm single. And then he spoke more uh, seriously, and he said, one of the things I just love about my singleness is it makes me available when anybody is is having a crisis. When a friend is having a crisis, I can drop everything. I don't don't have to get the kids to bed. I don't have to, I don't have to cook or clean up. No, I I just can drop everything. It's so much easier for me. It's, It's easier to be a first responder spiritually to the people that are hurting. And that, he said, is what I find to be one of the greatest parts of the gift of being single. Now, the reason I keep you know, citing him, is I was married at 21. <laughs> and so I don't have a whole lot of life experience as a single man. And you know, marriage for me, has, it has been one of the most delightful parts of my life. Um, and now what I think I really appreciate is when I find single people who have something of this mindset, who, who don't see their singleness as maybe an excuse to be selfish, that would be very easy to do. But, but see it as really an opportunity just to, to serve and bless others for that, for that period of life. Next slide. You know, the way that God has wired this world to work is the more we live for ourselves, the less happy we are. Isn't that true? The more we live for ourselves, the less happy we are. And he goes on, am I feeling fulfilled enough by my own singleness? Well, if that's the question I or we keep before us, the answer will never be Yes. Whereas if I'm thinking, you know, what can I be doing for others? What can I be doing for the Lord? How does my singleness open up some unique opportunities to be of service? We discover that as a side effect, that we're much more content in our singleness. Not because we are chasing contentment per se, but we are chasing Jesus. And it seems like everything else falls into place after that. You know, I'm out of time. I'm at the 38-minute mark, sorry. So I know I can't go into any more detail on, on other things related to this topic, say the topic of friendship. I'll just leave you with this. It, it was a tweet by Rebecca Lof- McLaughlin. She's an English theologian who's written several really good books on Christianity and the Christian faith 
with modern questions and, and like how does our faith react to our cultural moment. She's a same-sex attracted Christian who uh, in, actually ended up marrying a husband by choice, and she says, I'm happily married to him, and that's an interesting part of her story and her journey. I think it's cataloged in, in one or several of her books, but she tweeted this out this week, and it caught my eye. She said, three things I'm convinced of from the Bible. Number one, God made both men and women very good. Number two, God made both Christ-centered marriage and Christ-centered singleness very good. And number three, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And number three is the most important. To live is Christ. And when we discover that, truly discover what that means for each one of us, it, it opens up you know, all the possibilities of life, be they the possibilities of singleness, uh, the possibilities of uh, of what it means to live as for Christ in marriage. I do think that American singleness is hard. It's harder than other cultures and for some of the reasons that we already, I already mentioned. I mean, because we do live in this sex-obsessed place. And notice how our lives are oriented. We're spread out. We don't walk uh, and, and meet our next-door neighbor and walk to shops for the most part and, and pass the same people on the street. We drive in self-contained cars, and we're spread out. I think the biggest challenge to singleness in our culture is just individualism. Like, we are Americans, and so we're individualistic, and we're not a very communal culture, by and large. And so it's very hard to find community when there's very little communal mindset in America. I challenge you, I challenge us, what would it take for us as a church community to become a place where singles really felt like they had a true family here? What would it take, what would it take for us as a community to, to make it so that they felt like they had a blended family? And then personally, like what would it take for, your, for you and your wife, for your home to be a home that, remember Jesus said that, that if you leave home to come follow me, you will have a home, a new home. What would it take for your home to be a home uh, to, to single? You know, the love between a husband and wife is a unique form of love, but it's hardly the only form of love. I mean, what was it that he said? By this, everyone will know that you love me and that you are my disciples, is if you love one another. And that, that we desperately need more of. Amen.